leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The lack of clarity over health care reform, changes to tax policy, and concerns about new pricing pressures are creating uncertainty over the future health of the biotech industry. EY, in its just-released annual report on the industry, looks at the effect the growing uncertainty has had on the performance of biotech companies and strategies for contending with what's ahead. We spoke to Glenn G. Vanetti global biotechnology leader for EY, about the new Beyond Borders report, what the numbers tell us, and ongoing efforts for the industry to adapt to a healthcare world moving from volume to value. Glenn, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's great to be back, Danny. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about the new EY Beyond Borders report, the environment for biotech companies today, and How much of a transformation we're seeing in this long-expected shift from volume to value? Let's start with the numbers, though. The sector seems to be doing well, but revenue growth is down. Are payers to blame? Are we seeing these pressures finally take hold? Well, uh, I suppose we can say payers are to blame somewhat. I mean, I I think, uh, yeah, the rate of revenue growth, it was still an overall increase. Uh, for the population of biotech companies you know, across the U.S. and Europe, we track, um, but uh, so certainly that that rate of growth has slowed. Um, uh, partially, I think we could compare to some pretty strong years and a lot of growth over the last few years. So, in some ways, you know, success on success and growing off of an ever larger base becomes more challenging just as the numbers get larger. But yeah, certainly, I think the, the broader point of um, uh, payers continuing to push on pricing and, and probably more accurately value is a factor, uh, you know, and, and that's um, you know, really required companies to think differently about demonstrating value in order to get access to the patient populations that uh, they'd like to be, um, you know, accessing their drugs. Early stage venture capital accounted for more than a third of total venture capital raise, that's an encouraging sign. What's driving the interest in early stage funding? Is it a, a race to get to new ideas? Is it reflective of a broader strategic change as pharma continues to externalize R&D? Well, I think there's a lot of factors there. You know, first, there's a lot of capital in the VC world right now, which is terrific. You know, if, if we uh, contrast to, you know, several years ago when uh, we were chatting about, you know, was, was there really enough uh, uh, funding available for new company formation as opposed to, you know, continuing 
to find the existing portfolio. And there were some significant worries about the, the whole venture ecosystem as it relates to biotech. And the last few years have been completely resilient. Uh, so while venture funding was down a little bit last year, you know, the last two years in particular have been at levels much, much higher than uh, we saw in the decade before on average, for example. So, you know, there's a lot of capital available. Uh, a lot of that is in traditional venture capital uh, funds, and, and those funds have been pretty successful even recently of, uh, um, you know, raising new amounts of money. Uh, you know, I think they've benefited from pretty strong returns uh, to their limited partners over the last several years as we had a we had a pretty strong IPO market there and some nice M&A exits. So, you know, traditional venture capital healthy. Uh, we've seen, uh, to your point, you know, much more interest, uh, increasing interest from strategic investors, large pharma, big biotech to participate in earlier stage uh, uh, investing, um, you know, getting earlier access. Certainly their big pharma, at least, is, is also interested in, uh, you know, accessing innovation that's closer to the market and having a more immediate impact on their top line challenges. But, but clearly they're also interested in funding early innovation. And so some of those, um, some of that early stage funding comes from strategics. We also point out in the report there's been capital flowing from other sources from, you know, a bit of an east to west with uh, capital from China, uh, finding its way into, uh, U.S. funds and, and, and Western funds and companies, uh, as well as some, you know, direct investment from state retirement plans and other investors that might have, um, traditionally invested through, uh, through a venture capital fund itself. So lots of capital, I guess, is, is point one. I think though is the macro trend for uh, investing are quite strong you know we've got certainly a lot of unmet needs uh, matched with you know a lot of excitement in some of the newer technology areas um, where you know we're really seeing uh, advances uh, you know pretty significant step forward I'm thinking areas like immunotherapies and gene therapy for example which are attracting a lot of interest you know I would say that you know there is some concern around valuation in the sense of, uh, you know, that's a lot of dollars chasing deals. And so, you know, uh, are the valuations uh, remaining disciplined? Um, I think that tracks a lot, you know, where the public markets are. So as you know, public markets suggest that there's a trickle-down effect of venture, that's, that's something to keep an eye on. But certainly we're in a robust environment. And as you point out, a lot of that's going to, to, uh, to startups, you know, nearly approximately a third of it. So we're, we're seeing the, the front end of the R&D funnel uh, and what I would really consider to be a, um, a healthy way. I mean, as we know, in drug development, drug discovery, things don't always pan out as expected or as intended. And so, you know, more opportunities, more ideas being funded, I think, is, is a good sign for the long-term uh, health of the industry. M&A activity was strong, but down from 2015's record. What you are seeing is a, a drop in guaranteed money on alliances. Does this reflect shifting power at the bargaining table or companies getting more on the back end potentially for accepting risk? Yeah, certainly we saw this year a higher percentage of the total potential deal value in M&A and in milestones. I mean, that's clearly always been the case in alliances. And you know, we've talked in the past about the biobus phenomenon in alliances. Uh, and in fact, on alliances, the upfront payments were down year over year as well in the aggregate. Uh, M&A, especially among private companies, though, had an awful lot of that uh, sort of risk sharing around future commercial milestones in particular, sometimes around R&D milestones. Uh, I think the overall climate for R&D, though, remains robust. I mean, as I was saying earlier, pharma 
uh, big pharma, even big biotech, certainly is looking to the more uh, R&D stage, if you will, pre-commercial biotechs as new sources of innovation, especially those that are, you know, uh, rapidly approaching the market or may have launched their first product or two. So, uh, you know, again, while we were down a little bit off 16, I think 2000, or sorry, off of 15, 2016 was the second strongest year. Uh, there's been a couple of decent sized deals so far in 2017. The overall trends point to, you know, strong continued activity in M&A. And, you know, we haven't mentioned it, but, you know, um, I think the market, at least going into the year, expected U.S. tax reform to be a, um, you know, a, a potential positive in that regard, in the sense of uh, there's an awful lot of capital, um, a lot of a lot of money sitting offshore uh, held by, um, you know, U.S. domicile pharma companies that uh, under the right tax reform circumstances is expected to come back, be repatriated. Some will go to stockholders but and pay down debt and for other uses, but certainly the expectation is uh, if that happens, some will be there to fuel M&A activity as well. Another encouraging sign is an increase in R&D spending to record levels. You note R&D productivity is an area that continues to dog the industry, though, and call current R&D costs unsustainable. What are you seeing done to address this in a, a meaningful way? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think we're pointing out that this is strategic imperative and, and more needs to be done. I mean, there's certainly a lot of initiatives uh, underway. Uh, but, you know, from, a, from the uh, first a comment on it being unsustainable, or maybe even where you started, uh, Danny, with, uh, you know, the fact that R&D investments gone up in the industry is a positive, I, I, you know, I, I would concur with that view. Um, to a degree, that's because there's been, over the last few years, uh, ready access to capital. So that's, you know, what that shows is that capital is being deployed, and it's certainly being deployed, you know, where we would hope it would be, and that is funding uh, innovative R&D. Bigger picture, though, across all of biopharma, we know that as R&D spending got, has gone up, it hasn't necessarily equated into, you know, more and better uh, uh, drug approval. So there is a productivity challenge. And if you uh, uh, expect, as we do, that there'll be continual pressure on top line growth and on margin, uh, you know, the industry does need to face how, how does it uh how does it develop drugs in a more efficient way at a lower cost, right? And so, you know, in terms of what's being done, uh, you know, quite a lot. And there's probably more promise from, uh, you know, the application of new technologies as well. You know, it's, it starts with uh, even R&D strategy and an awful lot of uh, uh, product uh, pipelines today are focused on, uh you know, orphan indications or, or otherwise narrowly defined indications, maybe because of a, you know, a personalized medicine biomarker type strategy. The intent there is to, you know, obviously address a more targeted audience, um, perhaps have a, uh, be able to conduct a smaller trial, uh, also gather that differentiated data that a payer may need. Uh, but there's also initiatives going on across the rest of R&D in particular, you know, can uh, the whole clinical trial process be made more efficient from enrolling patients to, uh, you know, engaging, tracking, monitoring uh, patients, and frankly, you know, strategies to hopefully improve overall yield. And we talk about the early days here of the application of um, artificial intelligence uh, and the opportunity that AI technologies uh, may have to um, uh, you know, apply, effectively apply machine learning to 
to hopefully reach um, better decisions regarding which uh, which assets, which which molecules to take forward. You mentioned tax reform a moment ago. There's also the issue of healthcare reform. This is all creating a, a fair bit of uncertainty for the industry, and, and we know investors don't like uncertainty. We also have a, a president that's made pronouncements about drug pricing that could alarm investors. How much is this uncertainty hurting the industry, and is it minimized by dysfunction in Washington that has people taking it less seriously than they might otherwise? Yeah, well, I, we certainly agree that we're in a period of high uncertainty uh, related to you know, all those topics. You know, what happens on, on tax reform? What may happen with drug pricing vis-a-vis uh, -vis the government here in the U.S. If, if that's one of the levers the administration would choose to pull in order to, uh, you know, quote, bring drug prices down, as, as the president has uh, commented on before, um, uh, you know, as well as what will happen to replace uh, the Affordable Care Act, you know, if anything. I, you know, and you're quite right, investors, especially the, the generalist investors who try to, you know, predict and grab momentum in a market, uh, you know, do get spooked by uncertainty. I, I, I'd say right now, the market appears to be in very much a wait-and-see mode. You know, it's still up from the election. So I think, therefore, you know, optimistic about things like tax reform, uh, regulatory reform in general, uh, but clearly in a wait-and-see mode to see what would happen around drug pricing, around, um, uh, uh, you know, around whatever comes to replace ACA. So, you know, one of the reasons we landed on the title we did this year of this this year's report of staying the course is, you know, I think it's important for companies to, to focus on and uh, to adjust their strategies for those areas and those things they they can impact. So certainly, understanding the needs of payers as they're known today is is critical for every company doing R and D, and and most companies indeed are engaged in conversations with payers at a very early stage. Uh, it's difficult to, to, you know, adjust your strategy for what might happen in tax reform or, or even, for that matter, what may happen with uh, health care reform. So, you know, companies, early stage companies doing R&D pretty much need to keep an eye to the capital availability, but, but you know, focus on their core mission of developing drugs and adjust their strategy as need be. Filter out, filter out is, uh, I think we quoted John Milligan from, uh, from Gilead, filter out some of that distraction around uh, the uncertainty that you really can't address. Um, so uh, uncertainty, yes, so far the market's hanging in there. We'll, we'll see what the rest of the year brings. Pricing pressures are, aren't going away. You, you long talked about the shift from volume to value as a way to address the high cost of specialty drugs and explored some models to try this, which can be tricky in practice. This year you talk about value labs. What are value labs? Yeah, uh, Value Labs is a concept um, that a, a colleague of mine here, young partner by the name of Susan Garfield, has been uh, developing. And, and actually, the, the, the piece we have um, described in this year's report, uh, she's collaborated with uh, a couple of uh, uh, colleagues in, in industry, Michael Sherman at uh, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, as well as uh, Roger Longman, the CEO of, uh, of Real Endpoints. And, and the concept there is one of, uh, you know, giving room for experimentation. Because you're quite right. As, as we move models from the traditional, you know, uh, uh, fee for volume uh, with 
some negotiation, obviously, around discounts, rebates, that sort of thing, to more creative uh, risk-based models, be they based on financial risk or, or you know, outcomes-based risk, performance risk, or even to you know, more advanced models, annuity-based pricing, indication-specific pricing, those kinds of things. Um, you know, there's some real struggles for how those will uh, be both implemented and administered, uh, you know, both for payers, frankly, uh, and providers, as well as for um, drug companies. Uh, and, and from a drug company perspective in particular, thinking about how these models may be scaled across uh, numerous uh, payers is, is particularly daunting. So, you know, uh, while everyone sees the trend is towards value, while a lot of healthcare today has a value uh, component, uh, you know, including many services by physicians, for example, you know, these challenges have been, um, have been a significant barrier to more holistic adoption. Uh, and right now, I, I, I think it's fair to say most of the time when we see a value-based arrangement, it may be entered into from more of a defensive position where, you know, the pharma company is concluded in order to get access, uh, you know, we need a little more creativity to, to uh, bridge the gap um, between desired price and, and what a payer is willing to actually reimburse. So Value Labs just is, a, is a way of saying, you know, can there be structured collaboration between these players, between manufacturers, healthcare systems, payers, you know, perhaps data providers that will help uh, uh, track, analyze, and, and maybe adjudicate <laughs> outcomes. Uh, you know, it's a real way to say, how do we tackle these issues, make them real, and understand how we may come even to something of a standard, um, you know, to uh, to evolve where, where a value-based deal is more the norm than the exception. Well, my sense is that we often hear about these experiments, but not a lot about their success or failure. Are, are we seeing any outcomes-based payment structures that work? And, and should part of the role of Value Labs be to disseminate the findings? Yeah, I mean, I think it's early days on most of them. We've certainly seen uh, uh, arrangements made and put into place. The, the will at work is a, uh, a topic that I think still needs to have some judgment reserved on it. I mean, that they are operating. But the broader question is, you know, can they really be scaled? Is the data um, uh, accessible, trusted, et cetera? Um, uh, but yes, I think that's quite right. I think there's learnings for companies, but ultimately, you know, there's, there can be a learning at an industry level or the healthcare system level about what truly is scalable and what, you know, what can be put in place, to, um, to, to, uh, you know, to make these, uh, arrangements, um, you know, more prevalent, right? Because it's, it's in the details where the, where the challenges lie. I, you know, I don't, None of us go to industry conferences or hear commentators from across healthcare um, resisting the idea that we are moving to a value-based world and that that's, you know, probably the right place to be in order to make sure that uh, truly innovative medicines are being reimbursed, et cetera. Uh, but how to get there and what that looks like, um, you know, from a, from an infrastructure standpoint, from a contracting standpoint, uh, you know, from accessing data standpoint. Yeah, there's a lot of work yet to be done there. So, um, yeah, so I think whether it's disseminating, you know, um, uh, the learnings from a particular situation, that's going to depend on the, on the participants. But the hope is that there would be, uh, you know, broader learning and maybe even evolution towards um, some standard setting. 
Padufa, the prescription drug user fee act, will be up for renewal this year. Do you, do you see any of the pricing issues playing out in the legislation, or are there other threats to the industry that are lurking out there? Well, um, we'll have to see how that plays out. You know, with uh, new leadership at the FDA, I mean, I think you know the industry's always desire to have a, a clean Padufa, uh, but you know, there certainly are other factors out there um, in terms of. Uh, you know, um, perhaps competing goals and priorities, the administration that may may impact things. Uh, you know, the budgetary issues. So there are there are uh, there are you know challenges that will have to be worked through. Frankly, my perspective, probably a little too early to tell or, or comment. Um, you know, the legislation has certainly been a success uh, in terms of uh, bringing you know over time in terms of bringing resources to bear on getting drugs evaluated and you know, in a timely fashion and, and um, you know, certainly hope that that will not be disrupted. Uh, you know, I think the broader environment of, uh, of policy that we touched on earlier, you know, there's a lot of potential risks out there. Uh, again, I think right now it, it's premature to say, you know, that, um, uh, that those will turn out negative or that there'll even be drastic changes, uh, but it does bear watching. And, and I, I, you know, again, I come back to investors seem to be uh, leaning towards that it will come out generally to the industry's favor. And the fact that the, that the, the market for biopharma stocks is up since the election. And, and uh, you know, I guess the question is, how long does the market have patience until until they get certainty? Glenn Giovanetti, Global Biotechnology Leader for EY. Glenn, thanks as always. Thank you, Danny. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.